Welcome to the Advisor Talk podcast channel. This is Nick Stewart, CEO and Authorised Financial Advisor at Stewart Group. If you're new to the show, Stewart Group is a CFAX certified financial planning and advisory firm serving clients throughout New Zealand with offices in Hawke's Bay and Wellington. The information provided or any opinions expressed in this show are of a general nature only and should not be construed or relied on as a recommendation to invest in a financial product or class of financial products. You should seek financial advice specific to your circumstances from a financial advisor before making any financial decisions. A disclosure statement can be obtained free of charge. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Ken. How are you? Pretty good. Bearing up under the strain of it all? <laughs> yeah, you know, you're... You you always you always uh, are a man with a uh, the glass half full kid. So That's I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different stuff today, but before we get there, Nick, just wondered if you wouldn't mind just refreshing our, our listeners' uh, memories about just what you guys at the Stewart Group do. Certainly. Well, look, we're all things financial planning and investment, um, so people come to us to get their financial house in order and keep it that way. So uh, we deal with people predominantly in Hawke's Bay, but um, all around New Zealand and a few scattered around the planet. Uh, but most people have a Hawke's Bay connection, and we like we like helping locals make good decisions with their investments and their finances. Yeah, I can vouch for it. Having dealt with you personally, uh, you guys do just that indeed. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about today is why bonds are like ballast. Now, before you tell us why they are like ballast, mm. just to maybe describe to our listeners, what, what is a bond? Well, a bond is a fixed interest instrument. So a lot of people... A lot of people have never owned a bond, but they have owned a term deposit. Mm -hmm. Well, a bond typically is for a longer period than a term deposit, and it may be where a company says, hey, we need to raise some money. Rather than selling some shares or issuing shares, we are going to issue a bond, and it's like an IOU. Yeah. So, Ken, you would, um, a company like, say, Spark, who might provide your telecommunication service for your phone, Spark may say they want to borrow some money, it's going to be an IOU. They are going to do it in packets of $5,000, and they're going to give you a return of 4%, and they're going to use your money for a five-year period. They're going to pay you 4% every year, and at the end of the five years, they're going to give you your $5,000 back. Sounds all right, doesn't it? It does. Well, look, it's a, they're a simple instrument. They're quite clean. They're very efficient. For the most part, they're not complicated. They're very, very simple, simple. Uh, often referred to as like a vanilla bond, you know, plain yep. vanilla. And they are effectively, for many Kiwis, they are the, they are the rock or the, um, the ballast of a portfolio. So a lot of people, they use the bonds as the ballast yep. and they use the equities or the shares, that is the sale. Yeah. So you've got that nice balance between the ballast being what's in the hull and the keel yep. versus what's above the waterline powering up the ship. Okay, I just wonder, um, most people, particularly older people, might think all oh, shares could be a bit risky, better put in the mm. post office. Um, is, is, a bond, like, is a bond like money in the bank? Is, is it like money in the post office or does it have a risk attached to it? Uh, it does have a risk attached to it because um, one needs to, needs to remember that not every company is or company or institution or local council, they are not all bred equal. And so there are some that have a um, higher return and a higher risk than others, which are a little bit more kind of gilt edge and have a lower return. 
but a much lower level of risk. So you kind of, you know, you get what you pay for. Yeah. And look, some people are prepared to, um, you know, they're prepared to push the boat out and, and, and lend, effectively lend money through that IOU to a companies that their credit worthiness isn't as strong as another, but they're happy to do that because they're going to be compensated with a higher rate of return. Yeah. Would you consider bonds to be a long or a short-term uh, investment? Um, you can, some people, you, look, you can go and buy short, you can go to the market, go to the, buy the um, stock market, you can buy a bond that's been running for a period of, say, four years, it's got one year to run, and you buy it off another investor. But for the most part, most people are buying at inception on day one, and are buying for the for whatever the duration, the period of the issuance of the bond or the IOU. Yeah. Are there any famous examples, Nick, of bonds that have just gone gangbusters? Well, they uh, no, no, no. <laughs> In a word, no, Ken, no because because Ken, uh, uh, when you think about it, if you invest in a bond, they are only ever going to, at best, they are going to pay you what they promised you. Yep. And they are going to return the capital that you lent to them, and they're going to give it to you in a timely fashion, as agreed. So there's no upside. No. That is, they are, they are the contractual terms of the bond. Yeah. But things can go wrong, and that is where um, a company fails to meet its obligation, and it can be quite catastrophic because uh, you can fail to receive your payments. Uh, typically on a six-monthly basis or yearly, but most of the time six-monthly, they'll fail to make the payments to you, and then at the end, you might not get all your capital back. Yeah. Now, you know, risk and return are related. Sure. During the global financial crisis, we did see some bonds very much struggle in this area, and um, but they were those bonds that had a low credit worthiness. Mm. In New Zealand... We had no bonds that failed that had what's called an investment grade or triple B credit rating. Yeah. So hey, if you, you know, if you played above the waterline and you bought quality, then you were just fine. Why do you think? Um, and you'll know the answer. Um, why do you hmm. think? Why do you think companies issue bonds rather than float the company? Um, because <clears throat> because debt is a lot cheaper than equity. Mm-hmm. So Ken, if I was to say to you, if you are going to lend some money to Spark, who you know might, as I was using that analogy, might provide your mobile phone service. If you lend money to Spark, Spark can um, issue bonds that say a four percent return. But if Spark was to sell shares, and you were to participate in that, you are going to want a higher rate of return. Yeah. So generally, companies will prefer to, um, they will certainly prefer to um, issue debt rather than equity because equity is expensive to issue because it's higher up the risk spectrum and people expect a higher rate of return. I see in your notes that you sent through that hmm. you're talking about high yield bonds. How do you seek those things how do you seek those out? I mean, you know, people who are investors <laughs> might think, oh, I want to get the, the best value for my money. How do, how do you go looking for them? Um, well, um, hey, you know, you just deal with a broker or a financial advisor. They can give you a rate sheet. They can show you all the yields on the bonds on the market. Or you could go onto the global market and buy into an exchange-traded fund that was high-yield focused. But one must remember that the rates of return offered on bonds, even in the emerging markets area and in the high-yield area, those rates of return 
are very, very low in comparison to the historical average. So mm. interest rates move down across the world and across all sectors, not just the developed world, not just New Zealand, not just God's own. It was across everywhere. So, hey, um, you know, risk and return are related. Yeah. Where are the relatively high returns these days? Um, in terms of um, fixed income or across the broader spectrum? Well, maybe across the broader spectrum, you know, because, again, if we hark back to the old post office, what are you getting, 1% if you're lucky? Um, <laughs> you know, are there places out there offering, you know, 4 5 8 10%? Can you still get those? Or are those just a thing of the past? Um, <laughs> um, if you go onto Facebook and have a look at some of the things that people are spruiking, um, hey, there's um, some incredible yields on offer. But a lot of the time they are to what's called sophisticated habitual investors and there's a heap of fine print. And as I said before, risk and return are correlated or highly correlated and, um, you know, buyer beware. Yeah, and this will... I mean, for, you know, for the most part, the same the same rules um, the same rules apply today as they did yesterday, as they did last week and they did 10 years ago. Yeah. And that is where if we look at a kind of ladder of, of returns, you know, down the bottom you've got short-dated cash or T-term deposits, then you've got your corporate bonds, then you've got property, then you've got equities, and then above that you've got emerging markets, and then finally private equity. And as you move up that ladder, your return increases, but so does your volatility. Yeah. And and seriously, every time someone tells you that it's different, you know, can this time it's different? <laughs> yes. New, Ze- New Zealand's different. You know, we have cracked the widget, we have nailed it. Kevin, um, run for the hill. <laughs> now, last week we spoke about the OCR, and uh, there was some expectation that the OCR was going to move, and hardly, they hardly blinked. Tell us some more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, what happens, of course, unfortunately, well, fortunately for those that are borrowers, the Reserve Bank uh, monetary policy statement was one day after lockdown, so or after the lockdown announcement. Um, so naturally, the um, uh, Reserve Bank committee and made the decision to leave interest rates, leave the overnight cash rate, or the OCR, they elected to leave that as is for the time being. Um, and it was interesting that immediately after that, um, uh, no, uh, one notable uh, example was the ANZ Bank that pulled back on its recent uh, mortgage rate increases and pulled them back to where they, where they were uh, a couple of weeks prior. So, hey, that was good news for borrowers, but... The interesting part is that the, and I'll just bring it up, the Deputy uh, Reserve Bank Governor made an announcement um, a couple of days ago and just said, hey, you know, the the RBNZ or the Reserve Bank of New Zealand had considered a 50 basis point rate hike or half percent prior to the lockdown and indicated that in the future that they're going to have to look uh, at implementing a higher rate um, for the OCR. So, look, if it wasn't for the lockdown, dare I say it, we would have higher interest rates today. Yeah. Now, uh, tell us about uh, the China port shutting down. What an effect that has on old, good yeah. old NZ, which is a few k's away. Yeah, well, look, you know, when you, look at the other, when you live on the other side of the world, what happens with um, global shipping lines and um, container rates um, and ports and, more importantly, um, the clearance rates through those ports is very, very important. And we've seen a massive spike in the cost of shipping. <clears throat> but it's interesting that during this Delta outbreak, it certainly has reached the media far more than the original 
a COVID outbreak in China where pretty much the Chinese media was saying, hey, everything is fine over here. Yeah. Uh, on this one, that hasn't been the case. And Delta has been uh, has hit them quite hard and they've had to shut down a number of their very large um, ports. And what that means is that, you know, if we felt that we had shipping disruption after the previous lockdown and coming out of that lockdown, the environment that we're probably heading into is going to be more uh, more constrained than what we've seen in the past. So, so hey, Ken, you know, just the ability for you and I to order something online and yep. get it very, very quickly sent from offshore, hey, you know, we may be in this environment for some time to come. And I was just reading an article this morning in the newspaper saying that uh, we're going to perhaps have a shortage of containers to put in uh, in to send overseas. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem is if you've got a whole lot of um, if you've got a whole lot of containers that are sitting stateside, whether that be United States, um, Europe, or more importantly in China, um, the issue is is that if the empty containers are sitting in China, and we need them here to fill our goods, export to them. Uh, it's very, very expensive and very highly inefficient to send empty containers from one side of the world to the other. So, we've, look, we've certainly got some issues there, are some, um, you know, logistical headaches that um, greater minds than uh, yours and mine, Ken, are trying to work through, but it's certainly the um, flow of tide is not in our favour at the present time. No. Now, the one thing I like about talking with you, Nick, is I learn something every single time. And today you mentioned a word that I've never heard before until you uh, mentioned it. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's called the Belbin effect, B-E-L-B-E-N effect. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, what it is, it's, and I thought it was quite interesting because at the moment you've got this conspicuous consumption that we've historically seen with things like, you know, highly priced motor vehicles, um, you know, beautiful bottles of um, sparkling wine or champagne, as it's called from France. And these goods are where there's deemed to be a value much higher than another comparative good, um, you know, such as the luxury vehicle. So, for example, Ken, if you know you wanted to buy a bottle of um, sparkling um, Hawke's Bay Metho Champagne wine, you know, you you know you may better buy that for twenty five dollars, whereas the comparative French Champagne um, made under very very similar conditions and techniques. Uh, would be double, if not three to four times the price. And yet you're buying something very similar. Mm. And that is the kind of the Viblin effect. But what we've got at the moment with the shipping constraints and with global supply chain just so up in the air, you, <laughs> you've got people scrambling for, for goods. So we're seeing goods that in the past didn't really express that kind of luxury good or Viblin effect, but they certainly are now. And we're seeing that with... Um, you know, second-hand motor vehicles that people have driven for a period of 10, 11, 12 months, selling for a whopping premium over what they paid. We're seeing the price of second-hand or um, the secondary market for New Zealand wine shoot the lights out. Mm. And it's interesting, these goods that have gone from common goods you and I could buy at our leisure in the past at what we would deem as a reasonable price have moved to another well, it's got another vector at the moment, and that's why I thought it'd be worth sharing with people the Viblin effect, or the Viblin yeah. good, as some other people call it. Supply and demand, eh? Certainly is, yeah. I was reading an interesting article um, again today, 
And uh, you've got a great quote, which we're going to end up on. Uh, but it was an article on um, on KiwiSaver, and it was mm-hmm. uh, was a commentator's opinion. And uh, you will possibly have a different opinion, but um, he was saying that KiwiSaver, as we know it, won't provide enough for a dignified retirement. You'd agree with that? <laughs> well, Ken, that radio show that you and I did last week, we talked about the fact that it's that there are a lot of people out there who believe that if they contribute three percent to their KiwiSaver and their employer matches with three percent, and are, um, and with the market returns and the government top up once a year that they'll be able to live in retirement as they have enjoyed their, you know, working life. Yes. And we spoke about that last week, and the fact yes, that that just doesn't pan out that way. Do you think Kiwi said... Sorry, carry on. on. I was going to say, the number that the Australians have been talking about for quite some time is that they want to take their compulsory contribution to super to 12%. So that would mean that in New Zealand, we would need to double the rate of contribution. Now, that is going back to when you start your working life. Yeah. So imagine, so Ken, I'm 45 years of age now, so that would mean that if they were to lift it to 12, I'm still going to fall short because I've been working since the age of 25. Yeah. So I would have to catch up on 20 years. So, um, yeah, KiwiSaver is not going to be the thing that sees people, you know, well-rewarded um, for their working life at, at, at retirement age. It's not going to carry them through that. It's going to be a substantial nest egg yeah. that will not be sufficient. Is there a bit of a bias, do you think, uh, the way KiwiSaver is? I mean, you know, you, we're talking 3% as a minimum mm. that you can put in, mm. and you, you can put in a, a, more than that, obviously. But Of course you can. The problem is, though, do you think perhaps that currently, in particular, the average person can't afford to put any more in? So, uh, yeah, unless you're on a pretty good whack, then... Is that, a, is that an issue that we should be looking at as well? Well, well, the same thing, Ken, there's, there's two aspects, and I'll answer that part. But the other, there's one secondary part you talked about, that, and you said unless you're on a decent whack. Well, the same thing, you know, in the last, it's something, i just trying to think about the metric. I think it's about the last seven years that the, you know, the middle class in New Zealand is actually feeling quite constrained. Yes. Because the cost of housing is very expensive. They actually haven't had a material change in wage. So I would say that it's not just people on lower incomes that would struggle mm. to make the increased KiwiSaver. I'd say it's actually the lower and middle class. It's quite a large cohort. We're seeing this across other developed world countries as well. But in terms of going back to your first point and your your, your, your question, um, it's painful for people, but we heard the same argument in 2007 when KiwiSaver was first enacted. People said, hey, I can't afford 3%. But you know what? People get used to it, and as I understand at the moment, the government is there is a, it's at, a, at the at, it is at the discussion phase, and that is about increasing the rate of contribution to KiwiSaver in increments of one percent. What they haven't said yet is who's going to pay for that. Whether that's going to be through the employer, through the employee, or a combination of both. So no one really knows because ultimately someone has to pay. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I think the government realises that. You know, three percent, three percent equals six, and if you need to get twelve, then we've got a shortfall. Sure, uh, I've got a three-part question for you. I was staggered to read that uh, <laughs> one point two million people uh, with KiwiSaver accounts don't contribute to them at oh, all. Okay. And uh, the second part of the question is: Should it be compulsory to contribute? And the third part of the question is: 
Do you think the government should keep on putting in that uh, that bonus every year, or should they say, yeah. "Hey, look, you know, the country can't afford that because they spend seventeen billion dollars a year on super"? Um, the third question: Yes, I think they should still be doing the contrib- um, doing the um, government contribution or the member credit. I actually believe they should take it back to what it was in the past, where it was a thousand and roughly a thousand and fifty dollars a year. It was a much more meaningful number than five hundred and twenty-one dollars. Yeah. Um, so what was your second question? Uh, the second question was, should it be compulsory to contribute? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think it should be. I think we need to follow um, the global cohort, and that is that we need to we need it to be compulsory because, for the most part, most people are already enrolled. And the other aspect is, if you're the government, or I should actually say the taxpayer, because that is what the government is, the taxpayer of New Zealand, um, you and I, as taxpayers, we need other people saving because what happens is if other people don't save, then we need a safety net at the bottom where the taxpayer is ultimately going to pick up the tab. So we actually need people to be paying a little bit along the way um, into their KiwiSaver so that there's something there in the future. Otherwise, the taxpayer has to underwrite the bill. And if we look at the bubble of the population, and we have an ageing population in New Zealand, we may be cashing cheques. Sorry, we may be writing cheques that can't be cashed. Yeah. And does it surprise you that 1.2 million people don't contribute? Uh, no, because, yeah, it, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and look, once people start on a holiday, a contributions holiday, they just kind of, they get used to it. And Ken, it was like the analogy I used last week. If you get a pay rise and you save half the pay rise and you spend half the pay rise, you're getting ahead. But if you spend every pay rise you get on wine, woman, and song, and having fun, and not putting anything away, you know, ultimately, uh, down the track, um, you know, you're going to have to be reliant on the state. And National Super is really cool, and it's a really clean structure that was set up, but it is not opulent living. No. It's tough. It's existing, it's yeah, exactly. And you're going to finish on a quote? I am, and that was one that came out from Cameron Bagri, former economist for the ANZ Bank. He always comes out with some great, great quotes. He's always prepared to get the gloves off. And he was just talking about, look, the emergence of um, these highly contagious variants of COVID-19. It just puts New Zealand in a, in a more difficult position. And, and the translation was less productive capacity equals earning less equals spending less. And as a result, we may not be as wealthy as we think we are in a COVID world. So I leave you with that, and that is on the basis that we need to grow GDP, gross domestic product. We need to grow the pie so that we can fund all the great things that keeps the social fabric of New Zealand together. So that's a, you know that's where we need to get to. But I'll leave you with something positive, Ken, and that is that if you're invested in global markets, which you and I are, broad diversification, diversification, the only free lunch of investing, and that is that if you're invested globally, the NASDAQ, or the technology-focused index in the United States, hit a record high last night of 15,000 points. So, Ken, you and I are here. We're in beautiful Hawke's Bay. It's a blue sky day, bluebird day. Now, it might be a little bit volatile here, and we might be in a lockdown, but, hey, at least we know that our diversified portfolios are working well. And across the ditch, things are doing pretty well.
the information provided or any opinions expressed in this show are of a general nature only and should not be construed or relied on as a recommendation to invest in a financial product or class of financial products. You should seek financial advice specific to your circumstances from a financial advisor before making any financial decisions. A disclosure statement can be obtained free of charge. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.